Talking History on News Talk. Good evening and welcome. We're Talking History on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, the artist Goya and his extraordinary legacy, resistance, deception, and betrayal in occupied France, exploring the treasures of ancient Egypt, violence in Dublin in the first phase of the War of Independence, and finally, to end the show, we'll hear about the secret history of the Savoy Hotel. Last week, we explored the life and legacy of Ernest Shackleton and discussed why polar exploration continues to inspire to today. And if you want to listen back to that show or any of our older shows, just go to our website, newstalk.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. We begin tonight's show with Goya, the portrait of an artist. A new book is the first major English-language biography of Francisco Goya, whose genius continues to captivate, challenge and surprise us two centuries later. The book is called Goya, A Portrait of the Artist. It's published in hardback by Princeton University Press and costs £30 sterling, so about €34. The author is Janice Tomlinson. And Janice, you're very welcome to the show tonight. Uh, Thank you for having me. Uh, Can we begin with the character of Goya? Because he emerges from these pages as a a quite different figure from the traditional image. You know, he's not uh, dark and depressive, but he comes across as as someone who enjoyed life, likeable and uh, capable of great acts of of friendship and, and, and activity. Indeed. Uh, The documents uh, that tell us about Goya's life are in total opposition to the romantic idea of the tortured genius that so many have have repeated over the years. And he was um, sustained, I think, throughout his life by his absolute conviction in his calling to be an artist. Uh, you know, early on in his in his teens and twenties, he was rejected by the Royal Academy twice, and it didn't phase him in the least. He decided that he would travel to Italy on his own and learn about art. And when he came back two years later, he did. You know, he was given commissions that otherwise he might not have had. And he also, so he had a faith in his calling, but he also was convinced of his unique genius that was expressed through his capacity, through his creative capacity, through what he would call his invention. For him, this invention or invention was the most central part of art. It was the idea, the unique idea that preceded putting brush to canvas or pencil to paper. And he, in one letter, sort of said, he was complimenting his friend uh, about something he had written, and he said, you have it up your sleeve just as I have invention in painting. So there were those two aspects that carried him through. But he was also had the support of circles of friends, families, patrons. And I think this was because he was apparently an incredibly likable man, a very sociable man. And he used this not only among friends, but also it helped him to make his way up through the court ranks, even when there may have been people who were trying to work against him. He could find time chatting with ministers and even with the King of Spain, as he records in his letters to his dear friend Martin Zapater. So these aspects, I think, betray a very different personality than the isolated genius that many uh, identify as Goya. 
And he lived during a period of incredible transformation in Spanish history. And there was an incredible amount going on in terms of politics and also in terms of uh, the conflict with, uh, with, 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 with the Napoleonic Wars as well. And uh, so this was something that had a big impact on him, his life and his work. Um, very much so. His work responds to the changing politics of court. And in the book, I suggest how the well-known portrait of the family of Carlos IV perhaps expresses the optimism of the royal family after Napoleon has come to power, when they think that Napoleon will restore the alliance between France and Spain and restore you know, the, the, the power that Spain once had. Um, and when we think of the politics of the of the period, we all think of the Peninsular War, the war uh, fought by Spain against Napoleon. And I think if we look at the Peninsular War and try to measure its impact on Goya, I think one way to begin that is by comparison with many of his contemporaries. Let's look at the year 1814. The war is over. The Spanish king has returned. And Goya is in Madrid, where he is restored to his position as first court painter under the returned King Fernando VII. And that stands in opposition, which I underscore in the book, to many of his contemporaries, some of whom had died of natural causes, many of whom were impoverished, including some of his patrons and the Osuna family. Others were in exile, including his friend Moratin, and could not return to court because they had served the court of Joseph Bonaparte. Goya had probably also served the court of Joseph Bonaparte in that he painted members of the court and may have also painted the king himself, but he never accepted an official position, which was indeed very wise of him. So in a way, he was less impacted by the war than many of his contemporaries. But at the same time, of course, we have to look at his activities beyond the portraits that he painted, beyond the genre scenes that he painted, because during the war, he was when he etched the famous scenes of war and famine and political satires that were published 35 years after his death as the disasters of war. Documents suggest that Goya would not have seen the battles he depicted. According to documents, it seems he spent most of the war in Madrid. So he had to imagine the battle scenes. But one thing that he did witness was the devastating famine in Madrid, August 1811 through the spring of 1812, that killed about, by contemporary, about 26,000 um, people. And looking at those etchings, they're etchings that print dealers, you know, we tend to overlook because by that time, Goya was etching on very small pieces of copper. Copper was hard to get a hold of. They, the, these copper plates were pitted and damaged and they are not pretty etchings. But if you look at them, if you pull them up on the computer and enlarge them and look at them closely, you can see how brilliantly he depicts not only human suffering, but the aloneness of human suffering. There are groups of figures and you get the feeling by their expressions that each one is just wrapped up in their own terrible misery. Those simply incredible legends. He experienced quite a lot of tragedy in his life. Uh, six of his children died. Uh, he became deaf in his, in his later years. And 
did that have a significant impact on his on his work? Amazingly, the death of his six children, we only have mention of one. He mentions his a small daughter who had been sent away to a village who died in the village. And the reason that daughter may have been sent away is the possible cause of the death of his other children that I have suggested might be associated with an epidemic of smallpox that devastated Spain in the early 1780s. But he makes very little mention of them. However, he is inordinately proud of the one son who does survive. And he brags about him in his letters. And he is just so overjoyed to finally have a child who survives. As for his deafness, I think this is one of those challenges or misfortunes that strikes Goya that shows how he endured. It, it in fact, I think, served as a catalyst for him to find new outlets in his art. Whether he just decided to take up drawing or as a deaf person, he had a you know, pencil and paper to hand, he began drawing, we don't know. But he did around this time begin sketching figures, inventing scenes or possibly the recording scenes he had witnessed of figures interacting, of genre scenes. And then again, looking at the deaf man drawing and creating scenes of people interacting, I get the feeling that he was having conversations in, in mental conversations with himself because then he began adding notes and captions that sometimes are commentary on the figures and something silly that they're doing, or sometimes suggest the dialogue of these figures as if he's talking to his drawings, actually. He also, again, another outlet was that he began doing experimental paintings. And within nine months of his deafness, he had created a series of 12 small cabinet pictures of scenes which, in his own words, he could never paint in commissioned works because uh, of the limits they put on his freedom. So from that point on, from the point when he went deaf in 1793, that would be at 46 years of age onward, his career really is dual-tracked. He continues on his professional career, portraits, religious paintings. And at the same time, he has this incredibly fertile experimental career that leads us to his small paintings, to his drawings, to the etchings of Los Caprichos and to the etchings of Los Desastres de la Guerra, of the disasters of war. Okay, well, Janice, thank you so much for joining us tonight to talk about the brilliant work of the artist Goya. And you do it so well in the book as well. It's called Goya, A Portrait of the Artist. It's published in hardback by Princeton University Press. Costs about 34 euro. The author, Janice Tomlinson. And Janice, thanks so much for joining us. And thank you for having me. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. A new book tells the story of a complex wartime deception involving British, American and French intelligence services. It's called War in the Shadows, Resistance, Deception and Betrayal in Occupied France. It's published in hardback by One World Publication and costs £20 sterling, so about €24. Euro. The author is Patrick Marnham. And Patrick, you're very welcome to the show tonight. Thank you. I'm very glad to be here. Can we begin, well, maybe by going all the way back to 1962 and a journey you made in France? Tell me who you met. Well, at that time, I just left school. I was on my way to university and I was going to stay with a family in France who I'd never met before. Um, 
to, to learn French. And the house was owned by a very formidable lady called Madame de Bernard. Um, she was known by her friends as Souris. That was her nickname, but we certainly didn't call her that. We called her Madame de Bernard throughout our, our stay. And the other person, remarkable person in the house, was an English nanny who was always called Nanny. Um, and she'd been there right through the war. She'd been there for about 40 years by the time I arrived. And they were the two most um, impressive people we met as students in their house. And you later discovered that actually uh, she had fought in the resistance and had been betrayed. Yes, well, that came that came about in steps because in 1962, people didn't talk about the war very much. In fact, hardly at all. We knew that Madame de Bernard loathed um, Germans, which we thought was rather picturesque and old-fashioned. But we and we were told that she had been in the resistance, and she had been arrested and deported to Ravensbrück. We didn't know anything at that time about how her network had been betrayed because nobody talked about those details at that time. So talk to me about the anonymous letter then and and how this investigation began. Well, many years passed. I wrote a book. Uh, I, went to, I went to live and work in Paris. I reported the trial of an SAS, SS officer called Klaus Barbie many years after the war. And following that, I wrote a biography of the great hero, the symbol of the French resistance, Jean Moulin, who was the political head of the resistance and de Gaulle's delegate to it, and who succeeded in uniting the whole of the resistance. Um, And there had always been a mystery about how he'd been caught and arrested in Lyon in 1943. And in my book, I suggested that two of the people who'd been arrested or who had been associated with him at that time, one a communist and the other a hard right winger, were both still alive then, and this is in 2000, had many questions to answer, which they'd never really dealt with. And um, this book was then read by somebody, I never found out who, who read me an anonymous letter, 16-page letter. They said they had been in wartime intelligence and that I had approached the real solution to the mystery, but had failed to do the final failed to take the final steps in unveiling it because I had failed to connect the arrest of Jean Moulin in Lyon with the destruction of an SOE network, Special Operations Executive British Network, operating in central France, which had taken place on the same day. The Gestapo had, had delivered two serious blows against the resistance on the 21st of June, 1943, And he suggested I should look into the events around the fall of that network if I wanted to get to the bottom of the the mystery of Calouir, as as it was called, after the house where Jean Moulin was arrested. And his letter was very irritating, partly because it was anonymous, which meant I couldn't question him, and partly because of his rather supercilious tone about my failure to to discover, in his view, the the real explanation. And so that's what set me out eventually on, on an investigation uh, of this of the failure of the, the destruction of the Prosper network. Um, and I found, to my surprise, 
that Madame de Bernard, my old friend from 20 years or 30 years before, who was by then dead, had actually been a member of that network. So that I was investigating what had happened to a lady who I always regarded as a great friend. It wasn't just an academic exercise. And what you discovered could, you know, warrant a, a thriller of its own because uh, you almost have two stories running in parallel. Uh, you have uh, a betrayal of 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 one network, but then you also have a deliberate uh, misinformation deception campaign going on. Yes, yes. Well, one of the things the anonymous letter writer told me to do was to look into exactly what was what was being organized in London at this time. And that led me to look into the deception operations being mounted by various committees manned by MI5 or SIS, that is MI6 officers in London uh, and operated in France in the summer of 1943. And um, this was a, an extraordinary labyrinth of of of, of um, treachery, um, which I which I in the book I I think I've managed to shed some light on at least, um, and the conclusion I reached was that that certainly in the case of Prosper and possibly in the case of Jean Moulin, both had been deliberately given to the Germans for strategic reasons to do with the over the overall victory that was being sought, particularly on the Eastern Front where the Soviet armies were having a um, considerable struggle to finally defeat the German armies after Stalingrad. And the fact that you have people like Anthony Blunt involved in the the deception operation, you have an extra layer of, of deception to it as well because... They want to assist the Soviet Union, and and there you have one of their their key people. Yes, yes, exactly. The the, the deeper you go, the more the more complications you discover. But what I what I finally discovered was that there were two there were definitely two deception operations going on. One of which may have been infiltrated by Soviet agents working in London, particularly Anthony Blunt, who had managed to get himself. Um, appointed to one of the more important deception committees. And there was a direct line. Blunt, of course, was sending information on a weekly basis back to Moscow without being detected. Moscow had a very strong link to the communist branch of the French resistance. And one of the men I had originally suspected of, of holding back on the full truth was one of the more important communist agents, also a close associate of Jean Muller. So you, I ended up with at least three possible reasons why this disaster had occurred to the resistance in June 43. And what do you think of the way these stories were told afterwards? Because very often the people whose operations were blown or who were captured were were almost blamed or they were directly blamed for being responsible because of mistakes they had made themselves, which you show wasn't the case. Yes, well, of course... If you're going to start betraying your own allies and, and your own soldiers, um, you're going to have to do quite a lot of covering up after the war. There may have been good reason to do this, but it's not something which a government is ever going to admit to. So after the war, uh, I, the, the, the French who were investigating what had happened to, these, to this network and to Jean Moulin 
um, reached a, a conclusion in the, in the first case that they had been the victims of what they called a, an intoxication, a deception operation. And this became more or less the accepted account of the fall of the Prosper network in France. It was this account, this, this explanation was taken up in the 1950s by friends of some of the British agents who had been captured. And um, it was to still these rumors that the government, led by Harold Macmillan, at the end of the 1950s, commissioned an official history of F section, that's the French section of SOE, which was designed um, to, to establish that no such deception operation had been mounted. So part of my book is, is investigating the official history to see whether it was written entirely in good faith or whether it was part of an official cover-up. And I reached the second conclusion. Okay, well, it's an extraordinary story of ruthless double dealing and uh, brilliantly told. It's called War in the Shadows, Resistance, Deception and Betrayal in Occupied France, published in hardback by One World. It costs about €24. The author, Patrick Marnham, and we'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. For centuries, the beguiling ancient ruins of Egypt have provided an endless source of fascination for explorers, antiquarians, treasure hunters and archaeologists. And a new book brings together the work of many people who contributed to our understanding of ancient Egypt, offering a glimpse into a very different history of Egyptology. The book is called... Egyptologist's Notebooks. It's published in hardback by Thames and Hudson and costs £32 sterling, so about €35. Euro. And I'm delighted to welcome the author Chris Naunton to the show tonight. Chris, you're very welcome. Thank you very much for having me. It's a beautiful production and it's it's incredible the way it brings together all of these different documents and we get to see the documents. So it's really transporting us back to to the people who were investigating all of these things over the centuries. Well, that's exactly um, what what uh, what I intended. Um, so I'm glad to hear that it's working on on that front. Yeah, I mean, it's, this is intended to be a kind of um, an overview history of um, exploration and discovery, and the, you know the, the 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 development of what what is now the science of Egyptology. But um, I wanted to tell that story through the archives of the people responsible. You know, that story's been told before, but it, you, you, the, the archives themselves, the, the letters, the notes, the drawings and things, just allow you to get closer to, to these people. Um, and, the, you know, the moments when they made the discoveries that have led us to the point we're at today where, you know, we can say that we, we know something of the story of ancient, ancient Egypt. Um, that wasn't true two centuries ago, and what we know now is a product of of all of the the efforts of these people. And what's also interesting is that some of the monuments and some of the the very interesting things that they discovered have 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 since been destroyed. So these records also uh, show us things that have have been lost to the world. Yeah, it's a rather unsettling thought, isn't it? And and yet, um, and yet, that's one of the the key themes in the book. I think we we tend to think that ancient sites and monuments um, somehow became obscured, lost over time, and it's the job of archaeologists to reveal them. And, and once they do, um, you know, that's that. We've we've kind of got them forever. And yet, as you say, 
um, it, it's it's really quite incredible and unsettling the number of monuments in Egypt that existed, say, 200 years ago, um, when an interest in ancient Egypt was just beginning to get going. And for one reason or another, those things which are captured in these early drawings, in many cases, have either changed um, beyond recognition or in some cases they've disappeared completely. Um, so some of those monuments you could say only exist now in the drawings of these people and so so their efforts at this this very early stage in egyptology are um in, invaluable because of that it's also not just using the the records and it's not just exploring the experiences of these white men and in particular these white european men it's also about the women who were involved and it's also about the Egyptians themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Again, you know, the, the story of Egyptology is a story that, that has been told in the past, but it's generally been told from very much from a, a sort of Eurocentric point of view and from an academic point of view as well. And that means that the heroes of the story generally have been, let's face it, white men, white European men, the, the men whose names go on the front of published academic reports but actually, there's far more to Egyptology than that. Um, and and I knew having having been um, digging around in archives for for many years up up to the point I started writing the book that there were lots and lots of people involved um, who who are generally kind of unsung heroes. Um, whether they were the wives of the great academics who actually were doing at least as much of the work themselves or they're just other members of the team who were specialists of other kinds. They might have been artists or architects. Um, and then exactly as you say, the contribution of Egyptians, whether they were the people who were actually doing the digging, let's not forget that, uh, that all of the things that have been revealed, um, just about everything that's been dug up out of the ground in Egypt, um, was dug up by Egyptians, albeit under the supervision of others. Um, but the diggers, many of whom are absolutely the most skilled um, archaeologists in that sense and excavators, are the Egyptians who who tend not to get the credit. So the, the book is, in a, is very much an attempt to kind of tell a broader story and, and redress some of that balance. So I wanted to get as many of these other voices in as I could. Um, and that means that means more women, I think, than have generally been included in the story and certainly more Egyptians. And why does this subject inspire and entrance people so much? Because you even see it in in these primary documents themselves that uh, the, the the beauty of the landscape or the, the the ancient world being being uncovered inspire them to take photographs, to make paintings, to do sketches, to write it down. That it's it's it definitely captured the imagination of all of these people, and it still does. Yes, absolutely. And, and I, you know, I think in t 25 years or so of, of, of doing Egyptology um, myself, I'm still not sure I can absolutely put my finger on why this is. But um, I think it's something to do with the fact that um, ancient Egypt was a very sophisticated um, culture, very, very far distant in time. Um, a very kind of beautiful culture. It's very beautiful. Egypt itself is a very beautiful country. Um, there's something of a kind of aura of mystique and and beauty about um, ruined, you know, monumental buildings sort of half buried in the sand, just waiting to be uncovered. And there's something about this idea of things having been lost, having been obscured, covered up somehow. And the idea that if, you know, if you uh, if you make the journey halfway around around the world to this exotic, foreign, distant place, then then these riches are there. 
um, a little way distant underneath the sand, just just waiting to be revealed. And that that the book is really all about exactly that process. You know, it's um, some of that maybe has been lost to us now, but um, in the past it really was the case that um, there, there were pioneering explorers, um, archaeologists, eventually you know antiquarians, Egyptologists, going to Egypt and coming across places for what you know to the modern european world was was um was seeing these things for the very first time um and and the book is an attempt as i say to kind of through the archives through the drawings and the notes to put the reader back in that moment when these things are being seen for the first time and and to try and recapture some of that magic if you like of, of that moment and it also shows the importance of teamwork that it's not just the scholars who are the ones who matter but it's also as you say it's the people who who arrange the details who, who the, the architects the engineers the photographers but even the people who are just raising the funds or issuing the permits or looking after uh the the, the basic details that the whole area of egyptology wouldn't be possible without them yeah, that's right. Absolutely right. I mean, I suppose the history of Egyptology has mostly been written by academics in the past. Um, and the, the product of Egyptology, if you like, is, is published literature. Um, so, you know, if you if you use a library of published literature as the basis for telling the story, then, of course, you, you know, you're, you're going to be looking at the, the great academics whose names go on the front of books. But as I say, if you look at the archives, um, and 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 these documents, which were made more immediately on the spot, which bring you closer to the 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 the, the moment in the field when things are being found, you find that the cast of characters is much greater, um, and and involves much more people, and it's a it's a much more varied cast of um, characters of of all kinds, and and you know the uh, lots of the sort of personalities. And the human um, characteristics and nature of these things ten tends to get forgotten in published reports. Um, so that, you know, I think you get much more of a sense of what it was like to be an ordinary um, mortal kind of European, um, you know, out, out in a different, very foreign, exotic, if you like, sometimes hostile place um trying to make your way trying trying to yes of course you know record ancient remains discover new things but also just keep yourself safe keep yourself away from disease um lots of lots of our heroes um met their future partners husbands and wives in the in the process of all this so, and and all of that is there in the mix in these documents and as i say that gets lost in the in the published accounts so i, I wanted to kind of you know rewind back through the process and um, and, and get closer to what it was really like to be out there. Well, you succeeded magnificently. It's a wonderful book and beautifully produced by Thames and Hudson. It's called Egyptologist's Notebooks. It's published in hardback by Thames and Hudson and costs about €35. Euro. The author is Chris Naunton. And Chris, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you very much for having me. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. A new book takes the reader to the heart of Dublin from October 1917 to November 1920, the first phase of the War of Independence. And it shows the ramping up of the intelligence war as well as the upsurge in raids and assassinations. The book is called Killing at Its Very Extreme. It's published in paperback by Mercier Press and costs €19.99. And the authors are Derek Molyneux and Darren Kelly. And Derek and Darren, you're both very welcome to the show tonight. Thank you, Patrick. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. 
Thanks a million. So, Derek, I'll begin with you. And I'll begin with, I suppose, the, the different approach of this book because you're kind of looking at the war in its totality. You're having Dublin as the, the cockpit of the revolution. And then you're also kind of, in a way, dealing with it from the bottom up, looking at those who are involved in the struggle on both sides. Thanks, Patrick. OK, this book and its upcoming successor, they both represent the first time war of independence in its entirety, with Dublin as the cockpit, has been tackled from start to finish. Regarding start, most references to the war's commencement tend to focus on the Sola Headbeg shootings in January 1919. Well, we would argue that the conflict as such never really stopped after 1916. The Irish volunteers quickly reorganised after the rising, and by 1917, most of their companies were reformed and conducting drills. In late 1917, their leadership consolidated into an executive. A general headquarters was established with Richard Mulcahy as chief of staff, 1918 saw escalating raids. You also had the conscription process at the German West. We explore these in detail. In the former case, Dublin Brigade had arranged for a potential bloodbath for the British Army had they tried to enforce conscription in the city. You had an audacious arms raid on the US Navy West. There were volunteers by police in counties Kerry and Clare and a common the member killed by police. There was also the plan to assassinate the British cabinet in 1918. There were riots between separatist and unionist factions in Dublin, in one case escalating to a near medieval siege at the Sinn Féin headquarters. Nonetheless, it's important to illustrate why we commenced back in 1917, which is where our previous book, Those of Us Who Must Die, left off, having dealt with the risings aftermath. But once things kick off proper in 1919, you'll see that this really is a unique work. We take the reader on an un- presented roller coaster ride right up to a climactic November 1920 from where the aforementioned next book takes up the baton. We explore in both in with unflinching detail what the war actually intended Waterland Streets at this time whilst also providing a unique window into how these events interplay the political and the propaganda war in Dublin and Ireland. But as well as this, look, we on the other hand have finally provided readers with the means to sit and absorb the entire story encompassing all layers from start to finish and in a way that, like our preceding books, wrenches the reader into events such as the gruesome assassinations by both sides, the strategically pivotal hunger strikes in Mount Joyce, in a manner we can guarantee you will not have read before. The effect of the munitions embargo by Dr. Bailbrook at a strategic level are examined and the sufferings of the civilians are presented, be they victims of military or police raids or wounded bystanders to ambushes. Gun battles such as at Ashtown and the almost legendary escapes by Sean Tracy and Dan Breen, and then Sean Tracy's dramatic death in a gunfight in Talbot Street, attacks on armoured cars. So there's no compartmentalisation, Patrick. It's simply the story of the entire war, vivid detail from the perspective of the foot sloggers on both sides, as well as the key players. Yeah, Darren, it's interesting there what Derek said about the graphic and unflinching detail and you see that very clearly in the way that the assassinations and killings are described in the book because you deliberately decided not to hold back and you're going to present the reader with exactly what happened, blood and all. Yeah, that's true. We don't, we don't hold back, that's for sure. But what we, we are painting a picture of what went on often in broad daylight, surrounded by civilians. We also explore, as alluded to before, the psychological impact on the IRA themselves as a consequence of this. But in terms of graphic detail, there are dozens of killings and executions um, listed in the book, as there are in numerous other books. However, where we differ is that we feel that there is a tendency to sanitise the killings in other works. We're not interested in this. Throughout our books on the period, we just lay it bare how things played out. Otherwise, we would not be doing the subject matter justice. War is ugly, like. 
what is hell and what is awful. But for some reason, the human race seems incapable of getting beyond that. We just paint a picture of what it looks like, be that uh, during the intense fighting during the 1916 rising, afterwards during the executions, or during the War of Independence when the streets that surround your studio were the regular settings for events from it with what could be classed as a Tarantino movie. The war was vicious. And finally, Derek, it's also an interesting insight into the propaganda war because that seems to have been a, as, as, as important a component for, uh, for the revolutionaries as anything else. Well, Patrick, it could be argued that the war, the war was fought in Dublin and Ireland, as well as Britain, of course, but that it was actually won in foreign newspapers. Right from the get-go, there was international interest in what was going on in Ireland. Soon after Raymond de Valera's famous escape from Lincoln Prison in early 1919, for example, when the authorities could find neither hide nor hair of him, there were newspaper articles reporting sightings of him throughout Europe. In one newspaper, there was even a competition called Find de Valera, which saw hundreds, if not thousands, of people participating and having great fun doing so, but ultimately feeding the Sinn Féin publicity machine. Now, Michael Collins, with a flair for propaganda among his many talents, staged a major propaganda coup in May 1919 in the Mansion House, which is detailed vividly in the book. Collins humiliated the authorities by outwitting policemen who were backed up by hundreds of soldiers and were searching for him. He, he then sent for his neatly pressed volunteer officer's uniform and took centre stage in the Mansion House to phenomenal fanfare right in front of a political delegation from the USA to whom he then delivered a well-received speech about economics. Later that year, of course, Collins took centre stage in the hugely successful Dahl Loan film. But Sinn Féin were acutely aware of the power of propaganda. Cynically, you might say, when the first detective was shot in Dublin in July 1919, the IRA waited with bated breath for word of how his death, which came later, but how that had gone down in the United States before ratcheting, ratcheting up their assassination campaign, which they then quickly did. Now, this awareness was completely at odds with the British lack of propaganda terms. They learned little or nothing from the backlash from the 1916 executions and the intense backlashes from the conscription crisis and the German plot internments. As things progressed, they shot themselves in the foot time and time again after unleashing their dogs of war, the paramilitary police, the black and tans and auxiliaries upon the populace. Now, their antics even horrified the British military, and Republican propaganda was constantly waiting in the wings. Every time there was a village or a town sacked or damaged, the horrific sufferings of the civilians caught in harm's way would be relayed to the world's newspapers by the writers of what was called the Irish Bulletin. Now, the Bulletin was a small gazette-type news sheet, and it was a pivotal part of the propaganda equation. This was run initially by Desmond Fitzgerald, father of the late Taoiseach Garrett, and others such as Kathleen McKenna on a shoestring budget, but very effectively from various city addresses from where they were always, needless to say, looking over their shoulders. Now, Fitzgerald was in some ways the propaganda, while Collins was the finance and intelligence. Both had webs of contacts throughout Ireland, Britain and beyond. Fitzgerald very astutely ensured that reportage of the acts being committed in Britain's name throughout Ireland were not exaggerated, or not what we'd refer to more recently as sexed up, or there was, not, there was to be no fake news on his watch. He insisted on absolute factual accuracy, and as a result, was respected and trusted by his peers. He had a direct line to London, facilitated by a Dublin newspaper's telegraph service. Now, London at the time was the hub for the world's media. So from there, the harrowing stories emanated, landing on the breakfast tables of influential sympathisers throughout the world, especially in the USA. Now, 
Hunger strikes were employed with devastating effect in propaganda terms, both in, in the case of Mount Joy and later when Terence McSweeney's hunger strike triggered worldwide sympathy and protest and was, was commented on by notable and controversial future world players such as Italy's Benito Mussolini or Vietnam's Ho Chi Minh. The former paid tribute to McSweeney's stoicism. The latter commented that McSweeney had proved by his sacrifice that it was impossible to subdue the Irish people by force. Now, again... Referring to the British capacity for inflicting own goals, which were maximised on by the IRA, had the hanging of Kevin Barry, hugely controversial, also taking place on All Saints Day. Not the best way to get Catholic Ireland on side. But the list is pretty much endless in terms of the British blunders and propaganda terms. The brutal sacking of Balbriggan is covered in raw detail in the book. Well, it's fascinating stuff. The book is called Killing at its Very Extreme. It's published in paperback by Mercier Press and costs €19.99. The authors, Derek Molyneux and Darren Kelly. And we'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. In 1889, Victorian impresario Richard Doyley Cart opened the Savoy, Britain's first luxury hotel. Allowing the rich to live like royalty, it attracted glamour, scandal and a cast of eccentric characters with the Doyley Cart family elevated to a unique vantage point on high society. And the story has now been told in a brilliant new book, The Secret Life of the Savoy and the Doyley Cart Family. It's published in hardback by Headline and costs £20 sterling so about €23. The author is Olivia Williams. And Olivia, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Hi, Patrick. We go back to 1889 and the opening of the Savoy. How much of a a breakthrough was it or how much of a change to to Britain was it, the opening of this luxury hotel? Well, it was the very first one that we had. Um, Rich Doily Cart put the idea together really from travelling all over the world with Gilbert and Sullivan, who he had put together to make these comic operettas. And while he was traveling the world, he was busy thinking about all the things that he had enjoyed at various places that he'd stayed. So he dreamt up the Savoy Hotel and he built the Savoy Theatre first. And then using the money from that, he built the hotel next to it. And it was the idea was to have a world class restaurant and the American bar, which was one of the earliest cocktail bars in the world as well. And certainly outside America, it was one of the earliest. So it really set the bar for other London establishments to try to emulate what he was doing because he brought a completely different level of sophistication to eating and drinking and staying. So he really set the bar for luxury hotels since then. And he also brought over Cesar Ritz, who had been working in Monte Carlo, who then built the Ritz. So then it sort of snowballed into starting to have luxury hotels in London more generally. And it attracted celebrity guests from the very beginning. Can you tell us about about those, including our own Oscar Wilde? Yes, well, Oscar Wilde was one of Richard Doily Cart's talent agency clients because Richard had started um, in the back of his father's business, which was a musical instrument manufacturing business. He started running a talent agency. And one of the earliest discoveries that he had was um, a poet friend of um friend of a friend oscar wilde um and he was also responsible for oscar's big american tour where he really made his name um traveling up and down the country giving talks um so it made sense that one of the earliest guests was one of richard doily Cart's clients and oscar came to stay with his much younger lover lord alfred douglas and they ran up a huge bill and then it became part of that 
sad court case that was Oscar's undoing in the end. Um, the Savoy featured heavily in that because it was um, they they had members of staff uh, testifying against him effectively. So even though I think he enjoyed himself at the time, it turned out to be a very fateful and uh, unhappy stay for him for three months. And that's part of the story, of course, of the Savoy. There's the, the glamour, there's the celebrity, but also uh, very often there's the scandal. Yeah, so um, one of the few places, because it was one of the few luxury hotels at the time in the 1880s and 1890s, it was um, one of the few places where you could have a discreet affair um, so Edward VII, um, his mistress, Lily Langtry, who was an actress, she moved in um, pretty much full time to the hotel. Um, so he was often uh, coming to visit her there and she would start her days with champagne at 11am and continue from there. And then it was first the there was an actress called Billy Carlton, who also lived um, at the apartments attached to the Savoy. And she was one of the earliest instances that Britain had of a, a cocaine-related death, and that was related, uh, related in the press. Um, and so that gave the hotel a bit of infamy as well at the time. Is it true that it inspired P.G. Woodhouse? Well, so, the, so Richard Doylicart has two sons, and one of them was friends with Lord Alfred Douglas, who was Oscar Wilde's lover. They had met at boarding school uh, at Winchester in England, and then they'd been to Oxford University together at the same time to Magdalen, where Oscar Wilde also went um, many years before them. So uh, Lucas Doylicart, who was um, a good friend of Lord Alfred Douglas, he inspired P.G. Woodhouse's Smith character because one of P.G. Woodhouse's cousins went to school with him and he told him what a flamboyant, um, outrageous boy he was at school. And so it gave P.G. Woodhouse the idea for this character. And it was one of the few that he took from real life. Very interesting. I love the way you tell the story in three acts and each act follows one of the the owners or a a different generation of the family. So you've got Richard, then you've got Rupert who takes it over uh, in the 1910s and he's there for the the, the World Wars in the 20s and everything. And then you have Bridget who... uh, I think becomes one of Britain's wealthiest women. Uh, and you get to see how the world is changing and how Britain is changing uh, through the, the different changes that the hotel experiences. Well, I think one of the nice things about it is that it had so few owners in over a century. So there was, as you said, there was only Richard, who was the grandfather of the son, and then Richard's granddaughter, Bridget, um, until she died in 1985. So um, there are only three people. And then they had very slow turnover of staff as well. So it's a nice prison to look at history from because the family itself is pretty slow moving um, and the staff as well stayed there forever. Um, And then you get to see how how all these huge changes outside the hotel affect this little bubble that they all live in uh, and how they have to kind of roll with the punches of the 20th century. And you even see as new musical forms like jazz becomes popular, they're helping to popularise it in, in, in London. Uh, you see electric lights coming. That In a way, as, as the world changes, as even you know, Art Deco becomes popular, the Savoy is leading the way uh, with these innovations and changes. Well, that's a nice thing about them as well, is that they were pretty quick to pounce on any anything new that they thought would work well in the hotel and they were always enthusiastic about technology and new trends as you mentioned art deco and jazz they were some of the earliest adopters that we had in britain and um their enthusiasm and then because of 
the kind of fashionable people who they always had coming to stay it was very easy for these things to pick up because then you know you had all sorts of influential people who might see all the art deco in the hotel or they might listen to jazz and enjoy it and then they would go off and make it even more fashionable and then the family were also good at thinking of ways to really bring their reach out beyond the hotel so when they had in-house jazz bands that they put together they also then got them record deals so that people who never came to the hotel would still be able to hear them and buy the records and listen to them on the radio and the same with the um when the when cocktails became had a sort of really big sort of almost renaissance from the start um of the 19th century and then they had this surge of popularity in the 20s um again the hotel were good at they made the savoy cocktail book so that then Again, even if you didn't come to the hotel, you could still buy that book and get to feel some of the experience of what it might be like to actually go there and drink at the American bar. Well, it's a fascinating story, and I think it's one that our listeners will enjoy reading about. The Secret Life of the Savoy and the Doily Cart family. It's published in hardback by Headline and costs £20 sterling, so about €23. The author is Olivia Williams. And Olivia, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thanks, Patrick. And that brings us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to everyone who put tonight's show together, Susan Cattle, my producer, and Peter Malloy on sound. And before I go, I just want to say we are nearing the end of the first year of Talking History in the era of the pandemic. And I just wanted to take this opportunity to pay a special tribute, uh, more than the usual shout out to my producer, Susan Cattle, because she has kept the show on the road in quite exceptional, uh, difficult circumstances. And I think you'll agree that you can barely tell that we are going through a pandemic. The quality of the guests has been the same as before, the sound quality, everything. And that's the incredible work she does behind the scenes each and every week. So a big thank you to Sue. Now, next week, we'll be looking at the life and work of the Russian writer and poet Alexander Pushkin. And we'll be finding out why he's considered the father of modern Russian literature. So join us next week on News Talk. We've been talking history. Good night. Talking history. On News Talk.